Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. It's always a bit difficult getting up after seeing something like that, uh, a story that's so raw, so real. And I want to commend IGM uh, for the work that they're doing. Uh, I want to thank them for the opportunity to speak uh, on this day. I'm not with IJM, uh, but I'm part of uh, this church, and I usually am sitting there at the back with the prams at 10 o'clock. So if you haven't seen me before, that's where I, I am if you want to talk to me in the mornings whenever <laughs> you feel like it. I want to thank Sam and his team for the opportunity to speak uh, as well. I don't, just above all, I want to thank God uh, for the, the way he has liberated me. Uh, from my middle-class life, but the, the way in which God has uh, healed me and, and, and worked in my life. Uh, my problems are nothing like follies at all. Just to fill you in briefly, um, just on the next slide, um, up until about two years ago, uh, my wife Sarah and I, we were in Madrid, Spain. We were there for seven years uh, working with uh, survivors uh, in the sex industry. Uh, my wife in particular, as a healthcare professional, was working in a safe house, uh, helping women coming out of detention, arrested because they're illegal immigrants, not because they're on the streets in prostitution, uh, and providing uh, services for them, helping them to restore, uh, to recover their lives. Uh, I was doing research, but we were do together we were doing a lot of uh, speaking, educating the church, working with NGOs to, uh, to rally uh, and get behind the efforts in Spain. We've been back since uh, mid-2016, and this year started our, our new venture, because uh, we aren't back in Spain, we'd like to be, but we're not, but we're in, a, we're in Sydney, and God has inspired us to start a business called Unchained Business Services, and uh, we're riding on the wave of some legislation that's coming into play in Australia called the Modern Slavery Act, and it's calling upon the business community in Australia to take leadership in, uh, in addressing slavery in their supply chains and operations. And so as people who've been on the ground, uh, we sell, see ourselves as well-placed to bring information, to bring some integrity to this bill and help businesses deal with this issue in a real way. So uh, that's a little piece of who we are, and uh, you can uh, talk to me about that later if you like. I want to let you begin by letting you in on an inconvenient truth of a similar vein uh, to which Al Gore presented some 10 years ago with his uh, documentary on climate change. It's the inconvenient truth that some 40 million people live their lives in a state of slavery in our world today. 40 million people. That's up from some estimates of about 20 years ago where they were saying there was about 27 million. We can never be quite sure of the figures, but I'm sure the 40 million is a conservative number. Of that 40 million, 15,000 people are in slavery in Australia. So just in case you thought the issue was over there in uh, Ghana, the issue is here in Australia. People are working in brothels, they're working in nail salons, they're working in construction sites, they're picking fruit. Uh, they're working in all sorts of ways, cleaning buildings. Some 4,000 women are currently in a state of forced marriage. Having been forced to marry men, they, they neither know, love or agree to marry. And that's a conservative estimate according to the Salvation Army. 4,000 women in forced marriage in Australia. Now, I understand that words like slavery and human trafficking, these are not polite conversational words. I've 
been at many dinner parties with my wife. She's sitting across from me, and people start asking about the work that we do and the research, and I start giving all these details to the person next to me, and I've got a loud voice, and I start talking about slavery, and my wife goes, you know, turn it down. We're at dinner. And we're in the church. Why in the church are we talking about slavery? Such a dark, terrible thing. Surely that's, this, that has no place in our world. Certainly one of those issues, isn't it, that can leave us feeling empty, cold, numb, paralysed. And perhaps tonight I, I will leave you feeling numb and paralysed. That's not my intention. My intention is to, yes, drop the bomb, but help you to look to Jesus and see what he has to say about this issue. What does the gospel have to say about slavery and human trafficking? God calls us in Isaiah 58 verse 9 to cry out with the poor and the oppressed, identifying with their situation, not separating ourselves from it, to cry out for God to come and to find that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of violence, God is present. And that is a mystery. That's a miracle. So today's message is both sobering but hopeful. And uh, I hope that I can somehow bring some life into it. Now, if I haven't sort of already begun to disturb your worldview, I will now move to disturbing your biblical worldview. Because one of the most leading figures of the Bible in the Old Testament was a man who experienced part of his life, if not a crucial part of his life, in a state of slavery. And of course that is Joseph. Now, we often hear about Joseph and the great things that God did in his life. And yes, he was sold by his brothers and taken down to Egypt. But there God used him and gave him dreams and Pharaoh was impressed. But then he was back in prison again. And, you know, but then he got out and interpreted dreams. And then he was put on a massive platform where he was given control over a massive, a kingdom-wide food relief program that was of international renown. And he was able, through his influence, the influence that God gave him to bring his family, Israel, into Egypt, where they would dwell for several, for several generations until they found themselves once again in a state of captivity. I was there at the age of 11, working, playing with the Hornsby Youth Musical Theatre Group, singing, a, I wore my coat with golden lining. Ah, bright colors shining. That'll do. That's the humor. Sorry, in the in the sermon. <laughs> what we don't dwell on, and and the text doesn't help us in this way. We don't dwell on the experience, the time when Joseph, that day when Joseph was shoved into a well, the shock, the horror. We don't we don't see. We don't understand that the look on his face when his brothers betrayed him and sold him for twenty pieces of silver to the Midianites. We don't, we don't really get a sense of the struggle, of the pain, of the misery in, a, in an ancient prison. I mean, some modern prisons are terrible. Ancient prisons full of rats, disease, leprosy. Joseph's experience before he was elevated was, was pretty miserable. And somehow what I want to do tonight is think about Joseph's experience as a, as, a, as a person who was trafficked, as a person who was enslaved, and, and the experience of those who are enslaved in our world today, and what kind of parallels can we make? What kind of comparisons can we make? 
Well, the first is, next slide, is that um, there are four things that I want to look at tonight. The first is that uh, Joseph was young and he was innocent when he was first enslaved. In fact, he was 17 years old when he was sold by his brothers into captivity. Many who, uh, many who work in slavery start off their journey, their life, as young, as young people, young teenagers, sometimes girls, uh, finding themselves in working in slavery. You know, when Sarah and I first landed in Madrid and we started exploring this issue of um, trafficking, uh, we were shocked, horrified to learn that up until 1999, the age of consent, of sexual consent, was 12 It then moved in that year to 13, and it wasn't until some very intense lobbying by feminists and NGOs was it raised to 15. The European standard is 16, and Spain is not alone in terms of European countries. Some 10,000 children went missing uh, as people... Basically, that mass surge of migration out of Syria and Lebanon into Europe. Some 10,000 children in 2014 went missing, never to be seen again. And according to IJM, in India, a child goes missing every eight seconds. And only half of them are found. We know that for those who are trafficked, their life expectancy is not great, no greater than 30, perhaps, And when they become too old, too used, too tired, and we saw this in Madrid, they'd they'd be moved on and prettier, younger people would be put in their place. Life was cheap. Life is expendable. Now, Joseph was not only young, he was also innocent, idealistic. His only crime was his pride, was it not? In telling his brothers, I have a dream that one day you will all bow down to me. Little did he know. I'm sure that he would have known the the jealousy that would have been aroused by them, but he probably didn't see it coming, that they were going to do violence against him. You know, so many people uh, who who are trafficked start their journey as opportunistic people. They're looking for an opportunity. They're looking for a better life. They start out in in many cities and towns of Eastern Europe or or sub-Saharan Africa believing that if I, can only, if I can only get to Paris, if I can only get to London, if I can only get to Madrid or Berlin or Rome, then I can get a job, I can, I can become a nanny or a, a cleaner or I can work in a hotel. My life will be different. I can escape the life that I once, that I experience now. Sadly, uh, those dreams are rarely, rarely realised. Rarely realised. We met a woman once uh, called Joy, but her life was anything but joyful. She was from Nigeria, and uh, like many girls, Nigerians are all over Europe. It's become a, a, center po- a central point in the efforts to combat human trafficking and slavery in Europe. Joy's uh, story was very common. Uh, she was in the village, and, and women would come, a woman would come, uh, a trafficker posing as a job recruiter. Come, come to Europe. Come to Madrid and work, and I'll, you know, we'll provide housing, clothes, a job. We'll help you. Uh, and that help was necessary. I mean, for Joy's case, her father was ill. They needed medication. And it was up to the youngest in the family to take care of the family, to provide. And so, yep, the family said, go. Absolutely, why not? Go. We need help. We need money. Not 
go and work in prostitution necessarily, but go and make money. Well, when you don't have language, you don't have any prospects, you have no education, where do you end up? Of course, you end up on the streets. You end up in the hands of those who want to exploit you. Joy tells us that she could not imagine. She could not imagine the journey that was ahead of her. Not just the journey of crossing the Sahara on foot to a port in Algeria or Libya or being smuggled across to Italy before being flown into Madrid. No, the, the story of being pushed onto the streets to servicemen in the sex industry. Many girls uh, come from Eastern Europe and Romania, especially in Spain. Romanians are a huge population in terms of trafficking in, in Spain. And uh, Sarah recalls, she, uh, my wife, uh, before, long before this, once worked in orphanages and with street kids in Romania back in the early 2000s. And she could recall very clearly those, those moments. She could see the vulnerability of, of girls who would graduate from the orphanage at age 16 and put out with no concept of love, no concept of trust, no concept, no skills, no qualifications, no education, ripe for exploitation, and the traffickers are waiting. In fact, while we were in Spain, we realized, we, we learnt that actually it was the management of, orphan, of the orphanages who would often collude with the traffickers. That's how sad uh, parts of our world are today. Too often people's dreams turn into nightmares and they enter a life that they cannot escape. They cannot easily escape. And that's the essence of slavery. No choice, no freedom, and no control. And people need help. Well, people who are in this situation are often stripped of their dignity and they're abused. And we saw many situations of that. And we saw that in that clip. In Joseph's case, he started off as the favoured son of the family. He was Jacob's uh, trophy child. He's plaything. He's, um, yeah, he was his, his show pony. And wearing that ornamented robe it was a sign, a very clear indication that Joseph didn't need to work in the field. He didn't need to labour with his hands. He was, to be, he was to be in the home, to be the one presented to guests. But when, they, when he, his brothers stripped him of that robe and put him in that well, they stripped him not only of his clothes, but of his dignity, his freedom, and his dreams. Everything that Joseph knew and understood about the world was gone. You know, in the sex industry, many girls are dressed up, especially to lure their clients. And uh, there's a thing called the lover boy, men who pose as trustworthy boyfriends. And they lure girls into a relationship and shower them with clothes, mobile, jewellery, a home. And then somewhere down the line, something changes. They, they say, yeah, come with me to Italy, come with me to Greece and we'll have a holiday. And there, in that context, away from the safety of their home environment, they're pushed into prostitution to pay off their debt to their boyfriends. Those who are trafficked in a slave, well, you know, they can live. They don't know if they're going to live another day. And Joseph, well, I'm sure there were times in his life as he sat in the well or sat in prison, he just didn't know if, if he was going to live another day. He didn't know where his hope was going to be found. 
And so, so, you know, hope is often not there for those whose passports are taken, their identity is changed, they're raped, tortured, and broken in until they have no will left. IGM uh, tell the story of Gowrie. Uh, Gowrie and her husband, Kumar, they were expecting a child. And uh, at that time, Kumar was working for a... Uh, a a, a kiln uh, and a, a, wood, a wood mill. And, uh, well, there, there were some medical complications, and so they approached their boss for a loan of some 25,000 rupee. Well, the boss said, well, no, I'm not going to lend you money. You're going to have to work for it. In fact, I'm going to make you work hard for it. And at that point, their boss turned on them and became very abusive, both physically, verbally, and made them work very hard. It was, And at, the, at one point, Gary was, you know, we, our conditions are terrible. Can you, can you change? Can you help us? And he said, well, no. And he chained her to a cow shed while she watched her husband being beaten. Things, uh, they were like that in that situation for 10 years. And uh, things came to a, a very big, uh, the most difficult thing for them was when their own child was beaten for playing with a water tap. 10 years until IJM were finally able to get in and cooperate with police and rescue not only Gowrie and her family, but many others as well. Well, not only are people stripped of dignity, they're also exploited for profit. In Joseph's case, his brother sold him for 20 pieces of silver. That's about 400 US dollars. We know that many... Uh, are sold at different prices. Girls in northern Thailand can be sold for up to 5,000 US uh, by traffickers to help the family pay off their debts. Many tenant farmers have huge debts to their landlords. And, well, children are the best way to make money. I don't know if you've ever seen The Nefarious Project. It was a documentary that came out about uh, probably 10 years ago as well. And at that time, I wasn't a dad when I first saw The Nefarious Project, and now I am a dad, and... I'm still horrified, even more so horrified, by the stories that come out of that, one of which was, is the case of what goes on in Cambodia, in some villages, where children as young as three are sent off just as they're going off to school to service men in specially designed centres for pedophiles. And they service men at $3 a go. Beer is sold for $4 a bottle. Meanwhile... Dad sits at the front of his house, drinking, smoking, gambling, sharing stories with his mates. And there's no tension there. There's no, in that culture, there's no desire for any change. Even when the parents were approached, well, we can do something. We can take your kid and we can get them educated and we can get them a better job. No, no, that's, no, we're we're cool. We're good. I can't imagine I still to this day cannot imagine, as a father of two little girls, imagine what, what, how to come to that decision in life. What makes modern slavery so shocking is, that, is the magnitude of the problem. It's an industry that generates 150 billion US dollars a year. And it goes largely unnoticed in many parts of our world. Well, it's been a rough few minutes. I just want to pause there and just let you breathe for a minute. 
I like to just, there's many stories and we could go on. I'm sure Sue Ann, who's here tonight, could just tell you even more from what IGM has experienced in different parts of the world. But let's just pause for a moment and just think about it at the moment. Where is God? Where is God in these stories? Where is God in the world of human trafficking and slavery? And what does the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ have to say to those who are enslaved? You know, we have the benefit of, of, with Joseph's story, of seeing that after many years of servitude, how God raised him up, how God blessed him. And we have stories ourselves. A story, a beautiful story, comes from a woman who uh, we spent time with. Her name was Beauty. She was uh, Nigerian. And when she was first met by the team in detention, uh, she was not only physically, uh, sorry, emotionally uh, broken, she was physically unwell as well, very sick. And uh, it was around about the Christmas of 2014. And uh, the Spanish government finally granted her a permit to stay in the country. And once that happens, all sorts of social services kick in uh, for people, which is fantastic. So at that point, um, Beauty was invited by Sarah's team to come and spend two to be part of a two-year program in that safe house. And, uh, well, not everyone makes the two years because, you know what, the reality is not everyone can handle freedom. Not everyone can handle love. Not everyone can tolerate a sense of normality, and that's the truth of it. It's difficult. It's a difficult process. But... Amazingly, by God's grace, Beauty made the journey and she completed the two-year program. And through that process, as the girls in that safe house who worked with her became her family, they were able to not only see her uh, free, but, but empowered, empowered to find love, to find life. And they were able to see her get married to a, an amazing pastor in Spain and begin a new life with him. You know, we serve a God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, who cares for so many more people like beauty, who sees their stories, who knows their names, who knows their needs. You know, behind the 40 million people in slavery is our names, lives, hope, people, hearts, relationships, situations. And God, in his mercy, just as he sees you, he sees them. God sees them. One of our colleagues, uh, Ashley in Madrid, uh, runs a drop-in centre uh, for women uh, coming off the streets. And uh, she often collects clothes for them. People donate clothes for her drop-in centre. Well, one day she had a woman, one of her success stories, her survivors, came and, and said to her, look, I'm getting married. Um, do you have a dress for me to wear? And Ashley said, well, sure, we don't have any wedding dresses, but let me have a look. I'll go through and try and find the, the, the most beautiful dress that I can find for you. Well, she found a dress and she gave it to the girl and she was over the moon by the dress. Well, it was only a couple of days later that Ashley received a phone call from a donor, a woman who approached her and said, look, I've got four wedding dresses, used wedding dresses. Um, do you think you could use these? Well, yes, Hello. She was able to then present those to the girls and uh, she was able to get married in a winning dress. And I can't begin to tell you how special and that moment was. 
And what that says to me is the way in which God cares about the details of all his people. What it also says to me is that when we give of ourselves, when we put ourselves, when we put ourselves out or give money, time, energy, make connections, use our gifts and skills, whatever we do, and we just are generous with that. You know, we, we, don't, we may not perceive a need necessarily. We may not be giving to something specific, but God will take that and a need will be met. And we may never know what the need, the need being met is, but that's not the issue. The, the point is that God calls us to be generous with all the things that he has given us. You know, I believe, and I've believed this for a long time, that God is calling his church to be a voice for the voiceless, to stand for justice, to stand up in the name of Jesus, and to proclaim of the year of the Lord's favor. We cannot be silent as long as at least one person is in slavery. And on that, I just want to come back to uh, the passage in Isaiah 58 because it's a powerful passage, and it's a passage in which God calls his people to, to enter a real fast, a real lifestyle of worship before him. He says in verse 6, next slide, thank you. He says, Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing, your note healing, your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You know, as we attend to God's business, then healing takes place in our lives. That's the promise of this text. God is calling his people to a lifestyle of breaking chains, untying cords, yokes, sharing, breaking bread with people, sharing our, our lives, opening up our homes, clothing the naked, removing shame, restoring dignity, bringing honour. And not just for God's people, but for all people in the world. And that was certainly the case when these words were spoken to our community, a community coming out of exile, back to Jerusalem, who thought, we don't have anything right here. And God was saying, you need to do justice, even when Jerusalem is not yet built. Do justice. Do justice. But the amazing, the incredible thing is, the reality is that all this untying and breaking, this is exhausting work. It's exhausting. Poverty is exhausting. It smells. It's wearying. And we can't do it without God's help. We can't do it. And so it's at that point, as we look to God, when we've sat in the space with those who need freedom, we together with them cry out to God. God, where are you? God, where are you? God, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and be present. And God says, I'm here. Because I'm not a God who is so... Uh, I need to keep my hands clean. 
You know, we often get an impression that God is sort of out there overlooking things. But actually, God is in here. God is actually in the mess. God is in your mess. And God is in the mess of the entire world. Wherever there is suffering, injustice, poverty, abuse, violence, oppression, exploitation, slavery, God is present. And God wants his people to be present. Because it's only, it's only as we adjust in our thinking that that person's freedom is not just over there. That person's freedom is actually connected to my freedom. That actually we are not fully liberated. I am not fully liberated until everyone in this entire world finds freedom in the kingdom of God. That's, that is the call of God in our lives. And Jesus is the one who came was sent by God to kick us all off because he said, I've come. Next slide. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he's pronounced that over you. Not so you can just be saved from sin and death, but so you can be saved into an amazing global movement of God in the world. God is calling his church to rise up and to come to work with God in setting the captives free. Will you get behind those who are at the forefront of these efforts? Those IGMers who go out, work a very difficult job of working with local authorities, to find a way to release captives? Will you pray? Will you volunteer? Will you get more informed? Will you actually advocate for those? These are some ways that we can actually get involved. And what ways in your life, in your home, in your place of work, in your place of study, in your place of play, do you need to do justice? Do you need to bring God's righteousness to bear? Please join me in prayer. Let us come and call upon God, cry out to God. Perhaps someone out here tonight might want to actually just do that, just to cry out to God tonight. God, where are you? Lord Jesus, come. Lord, in your mercy, may your light shine upon us. May your face be turned towards us, Lord. Even as we have often neglected the full weight of your gospel, of your good news. Lord, equip us. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Give us the sensitivity to your spirit, Lord, that we may actually do justice in the world and bring upon the kingdom of God to usher it forward, to work towards it. Lord, help us to look to you, to turn to you, to realize, God, that you are in the mess and you are the roadmap out of it. I'm going to invite uh, Sue Ann to just come up and she's going to continue leading us in prayer uh, before we come together in the Lord's Supper.
Father God, we come before you tonight um, and we feel heartbroken by the stories that we hear about boys like Foley in Ghana, girls like Joy and Beauty. We feel angry that people in this world are capable of treating each other in this way. Um, we feel outraged that there are so many in this world who are able to live the lives that you meant them to live. And we've recognised, Father, that if this is how we feel, how much more does your heart break? How much more do you feel angry that the world is, is broken and fallen? And so when we say, where are you, God, in all of this? Where are you in the suffering? Where are you in the darkness? Where are you when slavery still exists and 40 million people um, are still trapped? We, we remember and we declare that even in the darkness, the, the angels cry out that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. The psalmists and the prophets echo that and declare that your light has overcome the darkness, that you are present, that you are powerful, that your love is stronger than any darkness that we might hear about, that we might experience. And so we ask you, Father, to, to act. We ask you to, to keep moving in this world, to encourage us so that we would not be weighed down by how awful things can be, by how awful people can be to each other, but that we can look to you and know that you are not a God who has, um, who has forgotten the poor, who has forgotten those who are enslaved, but you are God who sees each and every one. Um, you know Foley's name. You know the names of the other 50,000 kids trapped on Lake Volta, and they're precious to you. And we know and we remember and we declare that you are the God who goes after the lost sheep. You go after the one. And we want to call on you to do that tonight, Father, for those who are still trapped, for those who are still clinging to hope, for those who have lost hope. Would you arise, Father, and, and be their saviour and be their healer? Would you bring the kind of um, freedom and joy and love and light of your kingdom that this world so desperately needs? Would you break the chains so that each of those 40 million people who've been sold the lie that they don't matter, that no one loves them, that their lives can be bought and sold so that they would know the truth of how precious they are to you? And in, in knowing that, glorify you and, and sing your praises as well. I want to thank you for the encouragement that you give us that just in the last week we saw 12 kids freed from Lake Volta, 12 kids just like Foley who have names, families, dreams. Thank you for seeing them. Thank you for seeing their plight and hearing the cries of their heart, for hearing the prayers of all those who stood um, and interceded for them. Thank you that you saw them and you found them and you've brought them to safety. Um, and thank you that we can, for some reason, be a part of that because it pleases you to see your people, your kingdom, your, your church 
arise, call on you to act and, and be your hands and feet in this world. So we praise you and we, um, we lift up these prayers to you, these um, precious lives to you, knowing that you love them more than, than we ever can. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.